0: Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today, Megan Bowman. Megan is on the Fast Company Executive Board and she is a, a contributor to the Forbes Technology Council. Uh, but of course, as she is the founder and CEO of Stopwatch. She has um, quite a bit of experience in consulting, CPG, and retail. She lives and uh, works in Bentonville, Arkansas. And, of course, Northwest Arkansas is um, one of the um, main places for innovation in CPG and retail. She's also on uh, one of my boards. I have a board called DREAM. It stands for Dean's Roundtable of Entrepreneurs and Market Makers. And there are people I call upon for advice and input on various things as they come up uh, in the college. But Megan uh, is at that intersection of CPG and data science. Megan, thank you for taking time to visit with me today.
1: It is my pleasure, Dean Waller.
0: Megan, I want to talk about your your past and where you've come from, but I want to start with Stopwatch. And how did that come into being? and What does Stopwatch do?
1: Stopwatch, essentially, if you think about enterprise resource planning systems, um, ERPs, whether it's Oracle or SAP or Microsoft Dynamics, um, these big legacy systems that uh, a lot of large companies use to track and manage goods from point A to point B, um, do their bookkeeping, um, you know, bill of materials, kind of all of the, the the brain of the company oftentimes lives in an enterprise resource planning system. And and when e-commerce came along, basically a lot of people created tools and agencies to kind of take things from the enterprise resource planning system, jump over a gap, and then kind of have these separate kind of ways of working in terms of the way that they went to market through uh, the e-commerce ecosystem. And what Stopwatch is, is essentially an ERP wrapper that sits between the tools and agencies and the enterprise resource planning system itself in order to conglomerate Um, and bring together all of the data, public, private, historical, present, and modeled future into one cloud-based, easily accessible, democratized system so that anybody in the company, whether they're on the shipping floor or they're sitting in the C-suite, has the potential to log in and be looking at the exact same data as everybody else in the company.
0: Well, you know, that's something that clearly is uh, needed in CPG in particular. Would you talk a little bit about that, about the importance of that kind of capability in CPG?
1: Yes. The, the fun thing about CPG and, you know, as we built, as we architected this, you know, there are certain industries that are, that have you know, various levels of data complexity, right? Medical records have a lot of data complexity, financial services, um, gosh, even hospitality, education. I mean, there are different kind of pockets of um, data, you know, complex data, you know, areas. And CPG from our research was one area that, because every single item that gets checked out of a store has a data mark on it, the GS1 UPC, there's a lot of data out there, whether it's through the credit card transactions, whether it's through the retailers, whether it's through EDI transactions, there is a lot of disparate data that's been collected over the years that can unlock a lot of opportunities, both past, present, and future, in terms of how, um, how things actually work. And I think where we got really, really excited, and it's really kind of dorky, Where we get excited is, you know, I'll make this up. Like I just picked up a Clorox wipes on my desk um, and it has a barcode on it, but I'm pretty sure I bought this at Walmart. So when Clorox receives the data that I bought this, they are going to receive the data that I bought a Walmart item number that is not necessarily consistent with the universal packaging code that's sitting on the product. Similarly, if I buy it next week from Amazon, Clorox will receive a signal that says she bought Amazon item one, two, three, four. And the Walmart item and the Amazon item, even though it seems that it should be very, very simple, do not cross pollinate within their ERP system. They're actually, you know, different levels of of data And it's pretty complicated to cross stream all of those together and say Megan bought Clorox wipes and she bought them 20 times over these 15 different retailers over this period of time. And, you know, sometimes she bought two at a time. Sometimes she bought one. One time she took it back and that was to Kroger. Um, You know, there is a lot of just kind of base, kind of no duh purchasing behavior that you can track through the life of the product. And that's where we get really, really excited about consumer packaged goods because it naturally has a lot of data. And I think a lot of the focus, um right wrong or indifferent, has been around you know, the consumer journey. How do we get more people to buy, you know, to get them to the shelf and purchase things? Like that's a a beautiful science in and of itself. Another really cool science that is completely untapped is looking at the troves and troves and troves of purchase history. And when we can you know, assign a normalized pattern recognition and use that going forward, especially with the advent of e-commerce, there's a lot of, of kind of, I call it picking up pennies. There's a lot of pennies to be picked up. And, and that gets us really excited because uh, you know, if we can use data with consumer packaged goods companies, whether they're large or small, pretty much every person in America interacts with them. And if we can help take some cost out of the ecosystem, I'm sure some other place in the vertical will will you know eat it up. But at the same time, we feel like there's a lot of cost kind of looming around bad data that's a little bit tangled up. Um, and if we can get that straight for them, uh, they can reallocate those resources and uh, and thought leadership into more innovative ways to move forward.
0: Is your solution software as a service?
1: It is. It is. So essentially, um, a, an organization basically buys a number of SKUs times the number of platforms. And you know sometimes they'll start out with um, you know their entire portfolio uh, through Kroger, Publix, Amazon, and Target, right? They pay for that monthly. And then say they want to add Walmart, you know, three months in, then it's a, you know, it's like a Netflix subsur- subscription. We add Walmart and they're off to the races and running. Similarly, we've got, you know, because consumer packaged goods companies have so many different brands and categories and, you know, Procter & Gamble, for example, we we could just be working with their um you know, their their food division or, you know, their, their cleaning supply division and be working in three different retailers there. And then an expansion for them would be to move from, you know, the food division to the food division plus the cleaning solutions division. Um, and so what's kind of fun about our software um, for these really large companies is as they're experimenting with digital transformation, we feel like they need malleability an opportunity to expand and retract based on what they're finding. And so stopwatch is a highly flexible software as a service. So to get up and running is less than 10 days and to begin getting results is less than 20 days. And you can easily turn things on and turn things off. It's very much a, hey, what do I need today? What do I need next week? What do I need when I'm planning prime day, you know, or deals for days or whatever? And so, so, stopwatch is designed to really give you everything you need, but nothing you don't.
0: I don't know how you started your company. I'm curious. but typically, solutions like this come out of a problem that exists. So and you've you've mentioned that already a bit. It's one thing to know a problem exists. It's another to come up with an idea of how to solve it and come up with a minimum viable product and then to eventually you know create a product that has customer traction, and then you have to keep iterating with the business model to figure out what the business model is. So how did you create your first uh, prototype?
1: It wasn't pretty. So we say at Stopwatch, basically everything starts um, on a napkin or a whiteboard. So a concept um, with letters and numbers, if A plus B equals C, you know, what happens a lot of if-then statements, a lot of decision tree, kind of, you know, very, very basic. I, I like to call it like machine learning and molasses. I mean, machine learning is really nothing but a, but a bunch of sequences sped up over time and then, you know, potentially, you know, spun out to uh, to have some predictability. And so I always tell people like, forget the machine learning, just time out, go to a napkin and write your base formula what are your assumptions, what, you know, what are you trying to solve? What are the three assumptions and play it up five times on the napkin and do they work or do they not? That's really how stopwatch started. And essentially we went from napkins to you know, Excel, something that could make the math a little bit easier. Um, Excel went into kind of a more advanced Excel macros like, then it went into SQL server, right? That's what I could afford. And essentially, when we got to the place where we had completely maxed out all Excel, all SQL Server—I mean, we 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 were totally maxed with in with how much data we were running through. Um, that's when we brought in, you know, a full cloud-based database, you know, design team that essentially uh, dug out the architecture of what is now Stopwatch, and it was a really painful. Uh, transition between, you know, quote unquote, my minimum viable product that I could just push some buttons in, in um, SQL and get out to, you know, letting real architects and real developers build something at scale where our first, you know, active customer was General Mills. Like it's, it's very different, you know, Megan just kind of playing around, um, and the arrogance that I had, um, to say, you know, well, gosh, guys, I could do it better. I could do it better and faster. And, you know, I just, just kind of like jump ahead of them. And they're like, no, no, we're building this thing for like the next 10 years. Like, um, and so that, that was really how we kind of went from, to your point, you know, minimum viable product to um, to full scale where, where we're at today.
0: Coming up with a minimum viable product, I, I like how you described that because that is the way software starts. It starts simple and then it grows. But you eventually had a viable product. and
1: um, <laughs> Eventually. It took a while.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that that's a hard part, that iterating. But There's also the challenge associated with creating the right business model, the pricing and all that. It's never obvious how to do it. You can look at other software companies, but it's still challenging to create the business model. And, of course, companies are always, they never stop iterating on their business models. But would you mind speaking to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny that you should ask. I I actually believe in all of our strengths that the most opportunity we have is in the business model. Um, simply because um, and, and we've got a chief growth officer that we just brought on to, to start playing with those. Um, I'm an old retail person, right? So to me, everything's a cost plus model and in, a, in a very strict cost accounting mechanism, right? Like, I mean, I, I count ceiling tiles to like allocate, you know, space to how much I should charge to a head. I mean, very, very um granular. And and the the cool thing about software, especially when you're dealing with data, is you can get to those. Um, you know numbers, right? How many how many calls are you making? How many of those are successful? How long does the data store? How big is the file? You know, there's a lot of math that can go into that to kind of build this quote unquote cost accounting. You know, base of how expensive it is to you know deliver your services. The challenge for us is, and this is where I think you know the Netflixes of the world, the Amazons, and you know even Walmart with Walmart Plus. I'm not necessarily super gifted in understanding how to play against the value proposition versus just, you know, the cost plus margin. Right. So being a retailer, you know, you you keystone something right and put it on the shelf and you make 50 percent. You hope you sell eight out of 10 and, you know, then you're, you know, yourself's profitable. Um, mm-hmm. It's taken me a long time and um, and I would say it's an area that I'm still maturing in. To be able to kind of crack that paradigm and and listen to people like you or, you know, professors at the Walton College help me understand that there's there's definitely money on the table and value on the table to be extracted. Um, But I'm just, I'm so computational that um, it's hard for me to get there without, you know, some serious kind of creative help. So right now our, you know, our model is, um, it's subscription. Right. And it's a very simple formula of number of SKUs times number of platforms times recency and frequency of data. And, you know, as we've closed our seed round and are heading into series A, you know, we've got a chief growth officer that's kind of like, okay, I got it. Like, you're covering your costs. You guys have done a phenomenal job, probably better than any company I've ever worked with, to understand how much it costs to actually deliver. Um, Now, let's really start looking out on the horizon and say, what type of value is this delivering and how do we how do we close a margin gap or even, you know, exploit a margin gap, if you will, uh, to make sure that that we're hitting the margins of like a true superstar unicorn SaaS.
0: How many employees do you have now?
1: We've got 20 now.
0: So you've you've grown a lot. So that's the next thing I'd like to talk to you about is scaling. Scaling is difficult for so many reasons, but one of the biggest is finding people that can do the work you need done that fit your culture, and then putting the processes and technology in place to make the company work, and then finally, the funding for all of that. those three things are quite challenging but I would think i don't know, but I would think of all three of those the personnel might be the most challenging, especially nowadays what What are your thoughts on that and how have you found these employees?
1: I would say, Matt, that in terms of scale, I am still an immature CEO. People like, you know, Bill Waitsman or Ross Culley or, you know, Lori Coulter, I, I, Mark McCain, I have managers who I've been kind of their scale jockey, right? Like they've been the leader and they've entrusted me and I've helped them scale. So I've always kind of been on that side of the table, kind of the workhorse side of the table. Not that they weren't working, but You get the idea. Um, It's really hard for me to move from the workhorse side of the table to the you know organize other workhorses together and make sure that they're you know all working against their strengths and complementing one another and you know so so just know that you know I'm I'm humbly young in that you know every so often I just want to jump in and just do it myself and then you know have to remind myself like that is absolutely unscalable you know uh, that sort of thing. Um, I would say from a talent perspective, we've been really, really lucky insofar as myself and the three founding engineers have been together for four years. And when you've got, and and engineers are different, like when you're software engineers, like you kind of move in packs, right? And when you get the reputation of being a good shop, um, you know, the whole software engineering, I'm convinced that 20 years from now, there will be so many case studies written on, you know, ways to, you know, work with developers and, and maximize kind of these relationships, because I'm convinced we don't do it very well right now. And so having that kind of cred with some really top developers in the space, um, and, and having it through thick and thin, I, I, I truly attribute to uh, the reason people come to the company. So, when you've got, you know, it's one thing to have your CEO and founder saying, Yeah, this is a great place. When you've got three guys behind you that have, you know, we were rubbing pennies together. Um, and, you know, as they're growing and they don't have any plan of, of leaving, I think that's where that kind of magic happens when you see, you know, in some really successful SaaS companies, is that they usually start with a pretty committed core group of, of people. And people like to, especially in engineering, people like to work on cool stuff with other cool people. Um, And so, you know, because we're an engineering first firm, really the engineers hire their friends. It's a very, very interesting and fun market. I I get emails all the time from, you know, headhunters for engineers. And I'm like, um, I'm in a position where we have more people that want to join than we can afford to have. And that's because I, I fundamentally believe engineers live, breathe on this earth for different reasons than a lot of times we think they do. And so that's been a blessing to us. Now, as we've moved over to you know commercialization and have you know a chief operating officer, chief growth officer, membership managers, you know delivery coordinators, those sorts of things, those actually started with um, a really, really good number two. So uh, Greg Yen, I was very, very fortunate. When Walmart was kind of dissolving jet about a year and a half ago, I got a note from a, a gentleman named Greg, and he basically said, hey, I've got like 15 people that worked on my team here in the Hoboken office, all you know Ivy League educations, like lightning in a bottle type of team, and we're all being displaced at the same time. Would you have a, a role on your team for one or two of these people? And the first thing I thought was, well, shoot, Greg. I've got a role for you, like any leader, you know, that's out, you know, trying to help, you know, his team get uh, jobs to me, it was a no brainer. So, um, so really bringing Greg on as a key leader out of the jet Walmart ecosystem. um, And then him kind of bringing his people on has been kind of the other key for me. Um, I'm not a magical recruiter. I think, I think I'm good at getting good people and then they, they kind of do the rest.
0: So uh, Megan, you know, of course, the other piece of this is the funding. You know, you have a lot of chicken and egg problems when you first yes, start. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, how did you get funding? And I suppose you may have had to get funding more than once. I'm not sure, but. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah um, so the way I like in funding, and I love talking to other entrepreneurs and people who have made things work because I don't think there's any funding story that is exactly the same. Like, even if there's kind of like a path, there's always like some quirky, you know, side story that you're like, wow, that was, that was really strange. For us, like our overhead was not huge, right? So if you've got four developers who are building a product, the most expensive thing is headcount and engineers are expensive. So, you know, really, you know, when we were rubbing pennies together, I don't think I slept for a Thursday night um, every two weeks. For about two years, because it was all about making sure that we could make payroll. And while you know I was in a situation where I didn't have to make a ton of money, these guys that were working, you know, on this team, like they needed to make competitive salaries. And so um, for me, I likened it to oxygen, and it was just like we just need oxygen. I believe in this team. I believe that we're going to break through. Um, we just need to keep them oxygenated. And when you're just, you know, grasping for oxygen versus like thinking about it like cash, you get really creative <laughs> about where you can find oxygen, you know, if you're if you're suffocating. And so um, everywhere from, you know, obviously my personal finances to connecting with other entrepreneurs locally and, and taking out loans. Applying for everything the government offered every little grant, it didn't matter if it was $5,000 or $20,000 or, you know, $10 million. Like we, we applied for every scholarship, every grant. And, you know, miraculously, I think we'll look back on our books someday and be like, wow, I'm really surprised. We were really close to like bad things. But when you've got a good team and uh, you're transparent about where things are kind of all the time, we were able to make it through. But but yeah, funding is, it's exhausting because as a founder, and especially a founder that's building something that, that, that you kind of thought through in your head, in your mind, it's so clear the value that it delivers. And it's fine when people say no, but it's it's another level of kind of just disconnect when they're like, and we think you're going to go out of business, like, and, we, and we're and we not even going to give you money or, you know, so like, it's, it's kind of this double edged sword of raising money. I, I don't mind asking people for money. You know, I invite them to in- invest in what we're building. We're in a, you know, a much better position today, where we get to make choices as to whose money we take. Um, but in the early days, I mean, shoot, if you dropped a dollar on the on the pavement mat, like I would be at your heels, picking it up and asking you for another dollar. Like, um, and that's just kind of the, kind of the way it goes.
0: Megan, I noticed, uh, you were also on the fast company executive board. Yes. What do you do? And how did you get to that position?
1: I honestly don't know how I got to it. One of the editors emailed me and said that they were looking for, for somebody like me. Which was really, really cool because I've never done great in school and I've never really fit in totally. And so to have somebody reach out and say, actually, you know, you're a little bit different. So bringing you on would be interesting. You know, once they reached out to me, basically, what it's really kind of cool, they send me a list of questions every morning and I just answer the questions. They then do the work of, curating that across their entire, you know, executive board. And they publish out kind of these, hey, here's what different types of people are doing to address different types of situations. It's a really cool thing. I'm really blessed to be part of it. And of course, they've got all sorts of like meetups and, you know, fancy schmancy things that you can do. And it's been really fun. And, And as a reader of Fast Company for many, many years, Um, It's cool to be on the other side and kind of getting to say things that I know younger readers are probably reading and know that I was one of those younger readers at that time.
0: That's neat. So tell me a little bit about your work history and some things maybe that prepared you for leading a company uh, that is at the intersection of data science and CPG.
1: Yeah, um, I was actually never really good at math. In the way that it was taught growing up. So, it, this was pre Common Core. So, I never thought that I would be good at data. Uh, similarly, I, I started programming at a really, really young age, um, only to find out that it wasn't something that a lot of people did uh, back in like the 80s. And so, you know, little kids, especially little girls. So, it's kind of like there are there little hints as I was growing up of things that I'm like, okay, that's where that came from. But as you grow, you know, you kind of just become who you are. And I I would say that um, the thing that that's prepared me the best is I hate to say it's just this relentless pursuit, that weird kind of personality that is hard to bear in a lot of different relational situations is the perfect personality for, you know, an entrepreneur who's who's going to break through. And in my mind, we were never not going to break through because I never let go. The other piece was, was being coachable, you know, as a difficult person to manage with a lot of energy, what I had to learn really early on was to ask my bosses and my peers and say, Hey, I've got a ton of energy. I want to make sure that I'm harnessing it so that it helps you versus just me. That was a big part of of my learning as well. And, you know, as an entrepreneur and, you know, when you're running a company, you know it's really not about me every day it's 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 about everybody but me so i think those two things one is just not giving up and this really crazy kind of pursuit and then secondly having the wherewithal to have people help me direct that in ways that that made it bigger than just me